Martin Luther. Most of you know the name Martin Luther, right? The famous German reformer, 1517. He posted his 95 theses. They were basically deep concerns about the Roman Catholic Church. Luther was not trying to split from the church. He was trying to reform the church from within. He had no intention of starting the Protestant Reformation. After he posted those, he continued to write tracts that were passed out across Europe and um, his name and his theology grew until eventually the church could no longer ignore him and, and there was basically a firestorm brewing. And so in 1521, there was a council of religious and political leaders that gathered at what is oddly called the Diet of Worms and, and to consider these various issues, you can put the sermon slide up, to consider the various issues um, that Luther was bringing up and, and it was also going to be a trial. Luther was going to be on trial at the Diet of Worms for his teachings. Luther, who was driven by deep faith, his deep grounding in the word of God at this trial, stood by his teachings before the council, affirmed everything he taught, even though he knew it could result in him literally being burned at the stake. Luther was in found, in fact, found guilty of heresy and his ministry might very well have ended right then and there. Except for the intervention of another man, who many of you may not know, a man by the name of Frederick of Saxony, or sometimes known as Frederick the Wise. Frederick was a a German ruler, a governmental ruler. He founded the University of Wittenberg in the district that he was uh, had had sovereign control over, and this it's there that Luther lived and taught, and was ultimately the, the center at the beginning of the Reformation. It's very possible historically that, that Luther and Frederick never met, but, but Frederick of Saxony supported Luther's cause. He believed that Luther was being unjustly persecuted, and he believed that Luther's stand against the Catholic Church could help him obtain his goal, which was a, a free German state. And so he had both theological and political reasons for supporting Luther. But it was Frederick's influence, actually, that, that caused the Roman Catholic Church and the Roman Empire to give Luther a public trial. Without Frederick, Luther might have just been sort of uh, whisked away and, and privately buried. But, but, he, but Frederick demanded and used his political influence to bring about this public trial, which was a good thing. Luther, as I said, was declared a heretic at the Diet of Worms. But before Luther could officially be imprisoned, as the story of history goes... Frederick hired literally some covert operatives to kidnap Luther and usher him away from the authorities. Now, I read one claim this week, and this is unsubstantiated, but apparently there's reason to believe that Liam Neeson's great-great-great-grandfather was actually leading the kidnapping to usher Luther off into safety. But in all seriousness, uh, Frederick had Luther rescued out of Roman custody, disguised him as a knight, and brought him to the Warburg Castle, where he, in hiding, continued to write theology, continued to translate the New Testament into German. Frederick used his diplomatic status to further any arrest or criminal charges against Luther, and and Luther's opponents were never again able to arrest and destroy him as they had hoped. Now, there's no doubt in my mind that Martin Luther was an anointed leader called by God to reform the church, to restore the rightful place of Scripture and the gospel. And there's also no doubt that God used Frederick of Saxony's political influence to protect Luther. To protect him from harm, enabling him to escape from death. At least one dramatic moment and continue in his life to support him that he could thrive. And Luther's life demonstrates what we clearly see again and again in scripture. That God protects his anointed ones. 
That God sovereignly works through people, through circumstances, that, that His chosen might escape harm and fulfill their calling. And that's what we see this morning in 1 Samuel 19 in David's life. We read again and again in this account how David is going to escape from his enemies. As you find 1 Samuel 19 in your Bible, remember where we are in the context. Saul, the first king of Israel, has allowed his selfishness and pride to overtake him. He no longer has a heart for God. God has said that the, the line of kings will not continue through you. I'm going to raise up someone else who has a heart for me. David has just begun serving in the king's court. When David faces the Philistine giant, everybody else is too cowardly. David steps up in faith in the Lord. He slays Goliath. Saul, the king, acknowledges something in David that everybody else sees. David is is courageous. The Spirit of God is with him. He's a man of great faith. And so Saul brings David into his trusted inner circle. We read last week how Saul's own son, Jonathan, who would be the rightful inheritor of the the crown, Jonathan, himself an accomplished warrior and general, he pledges his allegiance to David, and their hearts are knit together, and they form this lifelong covenant friendship. Now, over the next several years, David matures, he gains experience, he becomes an accomplished military general, and his reputation across the, the nation of Israel grows. And and although David never challenged King Saul, Saul's jealousy begins to overtake him and he becomes consumed with his own paranoid fear that David is going to take the throne. And at times he loses his temper, he lashes out in violence against David. Why? Saul knows that he has lost the Lord's favor and that David has the Lord's favor. And so Saul ignores God's plan, ignores the prophecy that the kingdom will be transferred to a man after God's own heart. Saul again and again takes matters into his own hands and comes to the conclusion, David must die. And he's thinking about his son, Jonathan. If Jonathan is going to inherit my throne, which he's not, he says, David's got to be out of the picture. Though David was the Lord's anointed, Saul considered him an enemy. Why? Because Saul has turned his back on God. This is the background of chapter 19. Now remember, we're reading all of this compressed into like two or three chapters, right? But this is, years has, has, has elapsed as this story unfolds. And we're going to read this morning about, about really three dramatic escapes that David has. The Lord intervenes, sometimes through other people, sometimes directly to protect David so that David can fulfill his calling. And really this section of scripture brings to life Psalm 94. Psalm 94, 17 and 18 says, If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. And as we'll see this morning through Christ, this promise of that scripture is true for each of us as well. So let me pray and then we'll read this morning. I'm going to read it in three separate sections and we'll cover the entire chapter. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the testimony of scripture that is God-breathed, that speaks truth to our hearts, and that is beautiful, thrilling story, story that is true, that is true for us, of how you lead your anointed ones to escape from harm. Give us that encouragement and that affirmation. Lead us to Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants, that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. 
Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hands, and he struck down the Philistine. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. So, Saul launches this plot, calls Jonathan and his inner circle, look, David's going to have to be assassinated. But Saul underestimates Jonathan's level of friendship and allegiance to David. David goes and warns Jonathan, and then David steps up and and talks to his father, and essentially persuades his his father, convinces him, look, David is, is no threat to you, right? He reminds him. David's not sinned against you. You shouldn't sin against David. He reminds him, David slew Goliath. He says, you saw it. You even rejoiced when it happened. Why are you now seeking to kill him? He's innocent. In fact, Jonathan argues, David's military victories are actually a benefit for you and the kingdom. And so thankfully in verse 6, Saul listens to reason. And so he swears, an oath that he's not going to keep, but he swears, okay, I will not harm David. He won't be put to death. So Jonathan goes and reports this to David. David comes back into his inner circle and it says things go back to the way that they were. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm David, things are never really going back the way that they are, right? I've just had a spear thrown at me. I've just had an assassination plot launched against me. But but David's a man of faith. He goes back to serve the king. And we see here in this first story that God protects his anointed and that, and that David escapes from, from this death threat at this point because of Jonathan's commitment. And again and again, Jonathan's humility and friendship, his steadfast loyalty are a blessing to David. In many ways, David couldn't have done what he did without Jonathan's support. Jonathan sticks out his neck for him. He stands up for him. Jonathan goes and reasons with his father, persuading him to bring David back. As you read scripture, how often does God work in the lives of his anointed ones to protect them because of the commitment of others? Because of the persuasion and the reasoning of others. Praise God for men like Jonathan. For men like Frederick the Wise. Who were committed to be that support. That loyal friend. For other godly men. That they could fulfill their calling. What a joy to have others that that are committed to us. Um, At times maybe not persuading the enemy. But at times persuading us. You know, stay in the call, stay in the fight, be faithful, reminding us of the truths and the promises of, of God's word. This happened for me a few weeks ago. I was leading this pastor's retreat for Acts 29. It was a new, a new thing that I had not done before. There was a couple things that had fallen through and, and not going the way that I had hoped. And I, and I began to sense frustration and disappointment kind of well up in my heart. And so I called a friend of mine, Scott, who's a pastor in New Jersey. And I literally said to him, Scott, I need a pep talk. Now, some of you are like, Tim, you got enough pep and enough talk for like 10 people. But there are times when I need someone to give me a pep talk, to encourage me, to remind me of the faithfulness of God, to put things in perspective for me because I get distracted, I get discouraged, I'm led down harm's way in my own heart, in my own mind. And so he did lift my spirits and reminded me of the faithfulness of God 
And we all need friends like that in our life. But more than that, you too can be a person who's committed to others. That you can encourage others to walk out their faith. You can be a a committed friend, a committed partner, a committed brother and sister in Christ, speaking truth as Jonathan did. Sharing the gospel, sharing the hope of Christ, helping friends and family. Ultimately, just as David escaped the threat of death, helping friends and family escape the threat of the world, of the flesh, of the devil, of ultimate death in eternity. And as we stand up for truth, as we speak the gospel, we play that role in the lives of others, helping them escape the enemies that surround them. Let's jump into, into verse 8. We read of, of David's second escape. This one even more dramatic. Verse 8 says, And there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistine and struck them with a great blow, so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, told him, "If if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michal let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Michal took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed, that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed and the pillow of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michal, why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michal answered, Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? We go on to read how, how David escapes. But some time goes by after this initial assassination plot that Saul canceled. David's back in the court Again, as was often the case in the cultures and nations of that time, the season of war comes up. Israel finds itself again at war with the Philistines. David goes out. He again has victory. He's back in Saul's presence. And jealousy begins to stir up in Saul's heart as David is playing the lyre. And without cause, in a suspicious, jealous, fearful rage, Saul lashes out and tries to kill David with a spear. This paranoid rage overtakes him. David slips out of of Saul's uh, room. He runs out. He escapes into the night. In verse 11, Saul then sends messengers, says, look, go surround David's quarters, capture him in the morning. Now his wife, Michal, who is Saul's daughter, David is now the son-in-law of the king, she hears about this assassination plot. She warns David and she will help him escape. And there's this dramatic moment where they're in, in their chambers together and Mikhail's telling David, look, you got to run, right? So she grabs the bed sheets, he ties them together. It, it, we didn't read that, but I'm sure that's what happened, right? She lowers the rope out the window and she's like, David, you got to climb down the wall. you got to run for your life, right? And then she pulls what I call the Ferris Bueller move, right? She grabs this, this household idol. She puts it in the bed. She gets the, the pillow of goat's hair and the clothes and makes it look like David is sleeping, right? So that when, when Saul's guards come in the morning, she's like, oh, I'm sorry, he's in bed. He's sick. They leave. Saul sends them back. They come up to the room. Saul's like, just get the bed and just bring the whole bed so that we can kill David. They pull back the sheet and realize, uh oh, we've been Ferris Bueller, right? He's not actually in the bed. At this point, 
David is, is long gone. He's fled to safety. Saul, in verse 17, is furious with his daughter, yelling at her, Why did you betray me? Why did you let my enemy escape? Mikhail, at this point, probably not telling the truth, she de- defends her actions and says, well, well, David was threatening my life. I had to let him go, or he said he was going to kill me. Now, keep all of this in perspective. David is not a threat to Saul. David has not once tried to take over the kingdom. David is a loyal servant, a loyal general in the military. I'm actually convinced that if Saul had just played it cool, if he had just trusted David, I think Saul could have lived out his reign in peace. And after he had died, David would have taken over as king and there would have been a peaceful transition of power. But instead, Saul's pride and jealousy and faithlessness and fear overtake him. And yet God is still going to protect his anointed. He's still going to protect the future king David who has already been anointed by the prophet Samuel. And this time, he's going to use his, his wife, Michal's plot. She's protecting David. And God is using her actions for good. Even though some of her actions are not really honorable, right? Like she's lying to her father. We sort of question and wonder, wait a minute, where, what is this, this idol? It probably is some, some type of false god image that she has in, in, in her quarters. Why does she have access to this that she uses to, to put in the bed. Again, later she lies to, to Saul, saying that, that David threatened her, which is not actually the case, right? Her, her actions are not all that honorable. And, and I would say we need to note that the Bible here is describing Mikhail's actions, not necessarily prescribing that this is how you should live your life, right? Do what she did because she's in the Bible, so we're supposed to imitate everybody in the Bible. No. In fact, oftentimes even the heroes of the Bible don't have behavior that we should imitate so we need to distinguish what is the bible describing and what is the bible prescribing calling us to do but even Mikhail's shady actions god will use to protect his anointed one why because god uses all things together for good for his glory for his purposes for the salvation of his people now now this dramatic escape story reminds me of two other stories the first took place when i was about 10 years old and and my friend matt and i were trapped and by trapped i mean that the babysitter wouldn't let us go out and play because apparently she was instructed to keep us inside matt and i didn't didn't want to stay inside probably because we were told not to and so we pulled the bed sheets off of his bed and tied them together and threw them off this dropped him down the second story window to 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 be free of the babysitter's oppression right um now, to be perfectly honest, my memory is, gets, gets kind of fainted at this point. I think we chickened out, but I, I don't know. Maybe we actually did rappel down the window. I'm not sure. But the second story it reminds me of, which is much more important, is from Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, some of you may remember, the Apostle Paul is in Damascus preaching the gospel. And the Jewish leaders in the city are threatened by Paul and these early Christians because they're going against their teaching and, and threatening their authority. And so the Jewish leaders rally the governor of Damascus and they, they plot to have Paul captured and killed. And there are guards put at every city gate outside of the city. The disciples of Jesus find out this is happening. And, and so they come to Paul and they say, Paul, you got to run. And so in the middle of the night, and this, this actually the Bible does say in Acts chapter 9, they get a big basket, they tie a rope to it, Paul gets into the basket and they lower the basket out of the window down the wall of the city so that Paul can run off. Now from both the story of David and the story of, of Paul, we learn something crucial. 
Hear this. There is a time to stay and fight. And there's also a time to repel out of the window, down the wall, and run for your life and get out of harm's way. There's nothing ungodly. There's nothing faithless. There's nothing weak at all about that. You want a real life version because sadly this type of thing still happens. You guys know my friend Pastor John down in Ecuador. Sadly for many, many years Ecuador has been a a, a stable flourishing economy and government in South America. But recently uh, drug gangs have overtaken the city and much like we've seen in Colombia that sort of thing is beginning to happen in Ecuador to where it's not safe to travel and commerce is disrupted and and gangs are paying off police and there's growing violence and instability in the country. And one of the things that the gangs are doing is going in and exhorting money from local business owners and basically just going in and saying, look, you give us a thousand dollars a month of your profits or we're going to, you're going to kidnap and kill your whole family. And this type of thing is happening. The police are, 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 uh, have un, are unable to, to stop it. Now, thankfully, where, where John and Marilyn are, are living in Cuenca is, is somewhat insulated from a lot of this violence. But another pastor that, that John oversees in the Arco network in a small town had a small town gang member basically come to him. They figured, well, it's a church. The church got money, right? And they say, look, we want $500 a month out of your offering plate or we're going to do terrible things to your family. So this man and his family literally fled. I mean, this happened just a few months ago. Fled their city up into the Andes Mountains to where John is living. And they began to pray for a week. They began to pray. They began to seek the Lord. Lord, would you, would you move? Would you provide an escape for this man and his family, for the church in this, in this town that they could be free from this oppression? They're praying. God answered their prayer in a way that they didn't expect. But, but basically what happened was this was like a small town thug that was doing it. And his like boss in the criminal network found out that he was trying to extort money from the church. And he called the guy and said, what are you doing? Stay away from the Christians. Stay away from the religious leaders. You call this guy and you apologize or we're going to come after you and your family. And they protected him. So the guy literally called the pastor and said, hey, I'm sorry. We're going to protect your family. You're safe. We're we're going to protect you and, and all of your church. And God moved miraculously, right? But this guy, there was not a time to stay and fight, right? It was a time to flee. Some of us need to be reminded of that. That sometimes the way that God will protect you, the way that he will preserve you, is by looking for the the easiest, most obvious escape. And we don't necessarily face those type of, of threats. Praise God, Christians in the world tragically do. But our threats come from those ancient enemies of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And sometimes we have temptations in our heart where the devil attacks And the devil is overwhelming you. And sometimes the best thing that you can do is to climb out of the window and run for help. Sometimes the most godly thing to do is just to leave the party. Or or to just end the conversation. To say, I I know I'm only going to get sucked into sinful patterns. Sometimes the most godly thing you can do is to throw away the bottle. And you tell yourself again and again, well, it's moderation. You know it's not. Throw it away. Sometimes the most godly thing you can do is quit your job. You say, but Pastor Tim, I got to support my family. I need to pay bills. I understand that. But if you're in a position in the workplace where you cannot honor the Lord, quit your job. Right? Sometimes the the thing that we need to do is just escape and run and trust the Lord and, and look to others to come alongside of us. Some of you are battling attacks from the world, attacks in your own heart. Attacks from the devil himself. We're going to close out in a few minutes as the worship team comes up and we're going to have a time of prayer up front. 
that you today might be strengthened, might be encouraged to seek the Lord, to find that escape from whatever is threatening you. But before we do that, look at verse 18. Let's look at this. This is the most, I think, the most profound, dramatic of all three of the escape stories. And it's also quite comical. So if you want to chuckle a little bit, uh, it's not irreverent. It's a funny story. Verse 18. Now David fled and escaped. And he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Naoth. And it was told Saul, behold, David is at Naoth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David, and when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing his head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. And it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent other messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. And then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Saku, and he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they're at Naoth in Ramah. And he went there to Naoth in Ramah. And the Spirit of God came upon him also, and he went, and as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth in Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he he too prophesied before Samuel, and lay naked all the day and all the night. Thus it is said, Is Saul also among the prophets? So Saul is let down by his wife in the middle of the night. He runs to Ramah. Where does he go? He goes to find Samuel. I mean, we're not even going to be getting into it, but can you imagine how David is feeling at this point, right? Like he's humble. He's godly. He's trying to be faithful. He knows he's been anointed. He's trying to do the right thing, right? I can imagine if I were in his shoes, I'd be running to Samuel like, Samuel, what is going on, right? What, What have you done to me? Why is there a price on my head? So David tells Samuel everything that's going on. They run to a different town, to Naoth, to hide from Saul. Saul finds out where they are, and he sends messengers, think think like agents and soldiers, and they come to take David into custody. But when they arrive, they find Samuel basically leading this company of prophets. Now, if you were with us when we studied chapter 10, we saw this same type of thing. This is the idea of like a guild or a sect of prophets who are living together, worshiping, training together. Now, we sometimes only think of Old Testament prophets as, as guys that like told the future, but they were much, much more than that. They were mouthpieces of God that had a broader role in, in worship and in singing and prayer and speaking for God. And Saul is apparently running some sort of like training school. He's raising up new prophets and he's leading this, this prayer service and there's music and worship and prophecy and, and they're learning how to give warnings from God's word and how to teach God's word and how to listen to the voice of God. And the spirit of God is present in a profound way in this fraternity of prophets. And so when Saul's men arrive, they basically show up at a big prayer meeting to arrest David right that's not a good look but as they're walking in to like cuff him what happens they're overwhelmed with the spirit of god and they they essentially fall down and start prophesying with the rest of the prophets so saul's like well that's not going to work he sends another round of soldiers same thing another round of soldiers same thing three times right and here's what i here's how i imagine this i i don't know how my mind works but i i imagine this like like god is in heaven Knowing that David is anointed, knowing that, that the enemy is out to get David, not just Saul, but the devil himself. And so I imagine the father, like up in heaven, like looking down, right? Looking at threats, watching, and he's like, Son of God, there's somebody coming towards David, right? Nine o'clock. 
And so then the son is like, Spirit, are you ready? Spirit's like, I'm ready. And the son takes the spirit, like sees Saul's men coming, and he's like, and the spirit flows down and literally just knocks these guys over. They're overcome by the spirit of God, and they literally are stopped in their tracks. They cannot arrest and threaten David. God just divinely intervenes by the holy presence of his spirit. Three times it happens. Saul lives by the, the notion that if you want a job done right, you've got to do it yourself, right? So he now is planning to go to Naoth. He asks where they are. He's going in there. He himself is going to kill David. And God does the same thing. The Spirit of God overwhelms Saul. He is literally stopped in his tracks, falls down. There's something weird going on culturally with him being naked in the presence of God. But, but probably what's happening is, is Saul has stripped off all of his royal armor and his robe and his crown and his elements and he's laying complete humiliation and when it says they're prophesying likely they're they're giving praise they're worshiping god they literally have been overcome why because god was protecting his anointed god is protecting his anointed some of you Maybe you can think of an account like that where the Spirit of God just stopped you. You were about to do something stupid, something harmful, something sinful that was going to wreak consequences in your own life, on the lives of your, your family, and the Lord stopped you. Or you intended to do something. You intended to meet somebody or do something, and they didn't show up, and they stopped. And the Holy Spirit just intervenes. I often hear testimonies like this when people are, are threatened by the attack of addiction. Substance abuse is a vile, vile enemy that even in the church people wrestle with i was thinking about a, a woman who just had a, an instinct not a, not a mother's intuition a spirit-filled intuition look in your son's backpack looked in her son's backpack and, and found drug paraphernalia i remember a, a, another man who called home in the middle of the work day to check on his wife he knew that his wife had been struggling with drinking his wife didn't answer and the Spirit of God said, you need to get in the car and drive home. She was passed out on the couch with the toddler walking around. Think of another story of a woman who had not heard from her nephew who was struggling from d- drug addiction. He wasn't returning her phone calls, wasn't reaching back out to her. And so she, she got in her car. She drove down to Baltimore City, drove up and down the streets and the blocks where she knew that he was going to get his drugs. And in a large city like Baltimore, driving through places she should not have been, she found her nephew. How, do, how does God work in those situations? It's, it's the Spirit. Sometimes He sends people. Sometimes He changes circumstances. And sometimes the Spirit of God just says, boom, this is going to stop. Because my loved ones, my anointed ones, my called ones are in harm's way. And sometimes there's no other explanation. Maybe you were in danger, whether it be spiritual harm or physical harm. I mean, it was all about to go wrong. And the Lord God just said, no, not now. Because we see that the Lord's presence preserves and protects his people so that we may escape from danger from the dangers of the world from the dangers of the flesh from the dangers of the devil himself and of course we see this again and again most profoundly in the life of jesus and i've already shared with you and we'll continue to see in this series how david serves as a messianic type The life of David foreshadows the true chosen one, the true anointed one, the true one who would come one day as king of his people. Now listen, we sometimes think that Jesus had this like beautiful, thriving, easy ministry for three years. And it was only like the last few weeks that the Jewish leaders got angry and decided to arrest Jesus and put him down. That's actually not how it happened. From 
day one, there were those that were threatened by Jesus that sought to put him down. In Luke chapter 4, records one of Jesus' very first public uh, ministries. He's at home in Nazareth. He goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath. He reads from the prophet Isaiah. Remember that story where he reads the scroll? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Liberty to the captive, sight to the blind, liberty to those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Jesus announces this. And you would think that the Jewish people, they're waiting for Messiah. You'd think they'd be excited, they'd be grateful. They'd say, yes, Lord, you're our Savior. Do you know what they do? Go back and read the account in Luke chapter 4. They, they form a mob. They drag him out of the city up to the top of the highest cliff. And they're prepared to throw Jesus off a cliff. It's literally, he just launched his public ministry. And you know what the Word of God says in in Luke chapter 4? It says that Jesus walked away. It says he passed through the crowd. You think, well, what happened? We were actually not told what happened. I don't know. I think it was probably some form of divine intervention. Jesus was just protected. And God said, nope, not today. we got three more years. You're not throwing my son off the cliff today. Mark very first chapter chapter one mark jesus heals a leper the leper goes and tells everybody the crowds get so big jesus can no longer minister in big cities he's got to literally hide in the wilderness only go to small towns why because he knows that if the crowds get too big his enemies are gonna are gonna find out and the threat will be too much to overcome and so he avoids controversy in john's gospel chapter seven jesus is in jerusalem he's teaching Jesus claims to be sent from God, and the religious leaders decide to arrest him. And John tells us no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Again and again and again, the Father is protecting Jesus. Miraculous escapes, practical escapes. For three years, God's divine hand is on Jesus, his anointed one, helping him escape. Again and again and again. Until the day comes... When there's no longer an escape for Jesus. The plot of his enemies is finally realized. And the Lord sovereignly allowed Jesus to be arrested. To be falsely convicted. To be beaten. To be hung on a cross to die. And Satan himself, our mortal enemy. The evil king that was behind every wicked plot in David's life. The evil king that was behind every wicked plot in Jesus' life. Thought that he had won thought that the Lord's anointed had finally been captured. He could not escape. The enemy thought that Jesus had finally been defeated and would never rise again. Now why? Why? After hundreds of years of God's protection, after three years of God protecting His anointed Jesus, why? Why did God allow Him to be arrested? Why didn't He provide a window? Why didn't He miraculously send the Spirit of God when they came to the garden to arrest Jesus? Why? Why didn't the Father stop it? Jesus faced death, and the Father planned it, and Jesus walked willingly. The Lord's anointed willingly allowed himself to be captured and accused and killed so that you and I could have the ultimate escape. Amen? So that you and I could stop running, running, stop hiding, stop living in fear, so that you and I didn't have to continually live our lives trying to slip out of a window and run away from death and run away from the devil. Jesus was caught and killed so that you and I could escape and have life eternally. He gave himself up for us so that we could go free. 
The Apostle Peter says it like this. His divine power. God's divine power has granted to us all things. All things that pertain to life and to godliness. Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. By which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises. So that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world. Because of sinful desire. This is our great hope, our great glory, that Jesus himself died, that we could become partakers of his divine nature. That we now are the called ones, the anointed ones, the chosen ones. That now God's Spirit protects us just as it protected his son. God's Spirit provides for us just as he protected and provided for David and for Jesus. Because we've been called by him. And until the day you take your last breath, God will sustain you. He will protect you so that you can fulfill your calling. And so whatever you face in life and even in death, God will guard you. God will lead you to escape. Christian, you will still suffer as as Christians do. Some of you will still face disease. Some of you will face persecution. Some of you will, will all one day face death. But even that is God's good plan. That is not God allowing you to be captured by the enemy. That is God using, as he always does, even the circumstances of evil, even the sin of others for the Father's good plan. And he will at times intervene through committed saints in your life. He will at times change circumstances. And sometimes he will just throw down the Holy Spirit to overwhelm you or someone else that you could accomplish your purpose. And so the call today is to look to God, to look to God for your escape, to run to Him, not away from Him. And when harm comes, don't in your own strength think you're going to stay and fight it. Run to the Lord. And again, as we close, we think of those three enemies, the enemy of the world. That means the pressures that you face every day, the circumstances around you that seek to distract you and discourage you, physical sickness and pain, the harm that others cause you, the sin that others bring against you, The very enemies of God look to God for an escape from the world. As you face the enemy of your own flesh, your own sin, your own internal temptation. As you, without even knowing it, slowly drift into apathy. As you allow lust or greed or anger to overtake you. As pride becomes an enemy that you justify in your own heart. Look to God for an escape from your own flesh. From the very devil himself who still to this day sends flaming arrows into God's beloved ones. The arrow of of lies, that you're not good enough. The accusation, well, maybe God doesn't love you. An attack, well, you can't really change. And fear and guilt and shame seek to overwhelm you. Look to God for your escape. As I invite the worship team up, let me remind you of this promise in 1 Corinthians 10. As you think about the call to set your eyes and your heart on the Lord, to look to Him No matter what enemy you face, the the Word of God says that no temptation has overtaken you, but such that is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, therefore, my beloved, flee, flee from idolatry, flee from everything that is godless. And so as the team prepares to lead us in prayer and in worship and in song, I want to invite those that have asked, the elders and other leaders, to come up front now for a time of prayer. 
We're going to open up the front as the team leads us in worship. And I would invite you, I would encourage you, I I would exhort you, don't walk out of here with a threat too great for you to face on your own. It doesn't take much. I invite you to stand as we prepare to worship. You see folks gathering on both sides. They're here to pray with you. They're they're just like you and I. They struggle, but but they're going to stand in faith as as a faithful brother or a faithful sister. As you cry out to God, God, I I need an escape. I, I need you to lead me out of harm's way. Maybe you want to come up and stand in the gap for a friend, for a family member, for a neighbor. Maybe you want to come up and and have someone pray and intercede with you on the behalf of somebody who needs the Spirit of God, who needs to to run away from sin, death, and the devil. And so, Father, we come to you now as we pray. We ask for faith. We ask for humility to come up front and receive prayer. We all have needs. We're all broken. Identify in our own heart, God, the areas where we've allowed the enemy to threaten us, where we're at risk of losing faith, at risk of walking away. God, we pray on behalf of our friends and family and loved ones that don't know you or that are struggling with addiction or with depression, with fear, with any number of sins that would cripple them. Lord, we pray in faith, knowing that that you will lead us to an escape because Christ has come. And so we sing and we worship now because Jesus took death for us. He rose from death for us that we can now have life. Holy Spirit, be present in our hearts, be present in our worship and our prayers. In Jesus' name, amen.